And I kind of, you know, coined this phrase, obstacle-based design, you know, where if you're working backwards from the challenges and you see that as a, uh, a benefit, the obstacles are not negative. Like that's, a, people have this negative connotation and in design where you go, oh, well, we want a blue sky. We want a big concept. Like, I don't really like doing, working that way. I like to start with what are my, oh, you only have $6. Okay. Well, let's come up with the best guest experience we can for $6. Oh, like You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Today, I'm talking with Gary Wachansky. Gary's a friend of mine who runs a company called Hotop Associates, an experience and entertainment design firm. After working at Hotop for a decade under its founder, Michael Hotop, Gary became the CEO of the firm in 2013. Gary and I talk about making tough decisions in that role of CEO, Gary's philosophy of obstacle-based design, and what the show Game of Thrones can teach us about the art of the possible. For more on our discussion, and to check out the work Gary and his team have done to help the National Hockey League redesign its approach to hockey in the time of COVID-19, check out the show notes. I hope you enjoy our discussion. So I am Gary Wachansky, and I run a company called Hotop Associates, and we are an entertainment and experience design firm. And what that means is we design uh, environments for all kinds of entertainment experiences and attractions. And we uh, design both the environment uh, that people are in and kind of crafting the experience that they have when they're in it. Which is cool. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's like production design for film uh, brought out into the real world where you're interacting with an audience. So now you're not really production design, not for the camera, but for usually for a live audience. And, And we do some stuff for for a camera as well for television, but that's more event-based than anything like episodic. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I think is kind of cool is, so so we'll, we'll get into this, but you were for a while, you kind of hovered around like 25, 30 people, COVID came, you, you know, downsized to kind of meet, like very quickly face the reality of what was going on. And, and we'll get into that. But one of the things that strikes me that I'm I'm interested in is just, you know, even for a firm, when you guys were 30 people, I, I just have this sense that you kind of, you sort of punch above your weight, like they're, you guys are able to do, you know, sort of like big, um, like meaty experiences for people. And, you know, 30 people doesn't seem like a huge, you know, a huge um, amount of people to do that lift. So how do you like, can you, can you talk, am I, first of all, am I right about that? And, and can you kind of, yeah, talk about I mean, it? I took over, so I work for uh, Hotop is named after the founder of Hotop, Michael Hotop. And I took over for him uh, in 2013, but up until then the company had always fluctuated from like five to 15 people. Um, and then, you know, and it was small when I started and then we grew, but mostly by kind of rinse and repeating, like scaling across a couple offices, it was still small teams doing big things. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, I like, we are, our kind of motto is anything's possible. And I actually like that, 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 that space of 
doing new things you haven't done before or getting out over your skis, like taking responsibility for multiple components. You know, my background, my training is in theatrical set design, but I don't consider myself a set designer anymore. It's been a long time since I've identified as a set designer. I've always been interested and excited about like the bigger picture. And I've always felt like, you know, that kind of creative control gives you better outcomes for audiences and for clients. So, you know, I, I mean, how we punch above our weight range, I don't know. I think part of it is confidence, you know, and I think I have like subject matter expertise in a lot of different fields, but I tend to build teams that are, you know, kind of put together for the right thing. So we would take internal people and external subject matter experts and put together these teams. And I think when you're doing creative work collaboratively, you know, you can, you can do a lot, you know, yeah. with, uh, with, with, with a little, uh, I think if you have the right people, it's, it's, you can scale. So a team that seems like four or five people, you know, when you really put together the partners and the vendors and everything you're coordinated with, it's actually a much bigger operation that has sort of a, aggregated for a particular pursuit. And then it dissipates until the next thing and aggregates again with different people. So I think that's, and that's kind of how production works anyway. Right. You know, you, so I think, uh, uh, like that, that's kind of how, how it's always worked. So that ebb and flow of scale, you know, is, is really based on the project work. And for a while that was true with the company where we were really just doing more of the same across multiple offices, but it wasn't like when we had 30 people, we could do exponentially bigger stuff. We were, it was, you know, it was sort of three, you know, like three or four or five or whatever streams of projects where you're kind of bringing the same kind of philosophy. That was the vision anyway. I mean, to be honest, it didn't really pan out. Like it started small and like I took over and I had the same, whatever it is that Michael Hotop had that en enabled him to aggregate these teams and kind of do this kind of work as a leader. Uh, I had that same skill set, and that's why I became the sort of heir apparent. But, and I think my mindset was that I was going to rinse and repeat what I was doing. And, you know, we can talk about it more, but like things weren't rosy for us before COVID-19. Like yeah. we were already like kind of on the ropes a little bit. And I think victim of our own scaling too fast. And what I discovered was like, I could find people that could design and lead teams and I could find people that could sell, create work and manage clients. But finding people that could do both was kind of a unicorn pursuit, you know, and uh, I was not really coming to grips with that fact for a long time. And I, I think then what COVID became was a catalyst for me to just have to act on what I knew, you know, in my gut. Yeah. And that's actually, I mean, that's how we first started talking about this stuff. And I think what was yeah. like, how, how, like, kind of why we, why we've been able to like dive in and, and, and sort of like really get to some interesting stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, can you, can you talk about that? Cause I should say, you know, and the, 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 the idea of this podcast is that the, the, the kind of my mental model of the audience is that it's business owners, entrepreneurs, but also people who, um, are just kind of, I think, interested in growth, right? Interested in in sort of taking taking charge of their own growth. And so, the the guests are both people like you who you know actually do stuff. Um, that makes that sound demeaning to the next category <laughs> of people. I'm going to say, um, but ac academics who you know take are able to take a step back and and study this stuff at kind of some some more scale. Um, yeah, yeah. And and bring a different perspective. And so. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm sort of curious, like, if it, you sort of said, you know, that, that you would kind of, things weren't so rosy before COVID. So this ju wasn't just like, oh, COVID came and the demand evaporated. This was like, COVID came and it really helped you see 
that things weren't working. Um, mm -hmm. Like, what do you think was holding you back from seeing that, you know, February 15th before, before COVID really started having an impact? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it was seeing it or having the will to act. Okay. You know, like, I think, I think I saw it a long time ago. I mean, we grew organically, you know, a little bit. A lot of the people that were running these other offices were people who I was friends with, you know, right. people who I had relationships with through project work, who I liked, who I cared about. And, you know, I brought everybody together at a time without really a mission or a vision, but just because of our relationship, they were willing to say, oh, we're going to give up our freelance or our you know, our other stuff and we're going to get on board with you and try to do this thing together. But I think leaning into that ownership of what my thing really was and what my yeah. vision was for what I was trying to do was not something I was able to articulate, you know, two or three years ago. Yeah. And over like the course of 2019, I actually I was, I went through the process of really honing in and figuring out what it was I was trying to do, what I believed, what my values were, what I was trying to accomplish. And I could tell, you know, throughout that process, like, and really start to go, oh, okay, I, I think I really need to back up. And I don't think I had the will to, you know, a friend of mine referred to it as burning it down to the studs, you know, like I just couldn't, you know, emotionally get myself to say, I need to take a step back here, you know, and there we had our successes and our failings, but we weren't scaling the way we had envisioned. And we had had a tremendously large project that I was leading that was really backstopping and it was covering up all the challenges in the in the business so we like things we knew that weren't working or i knew and i could sense you know we're kind of able to we were able to sweep it under the ruck because we had the revenue totally. uh, you know so uh and then that started to change at the end of 2019 because that pro the bottom fell out of that project like that client went away it evaporated they lost their funding so suddenly warts and all like we were we were really faced with it. And what are we, you know, trying to decide what to do. So we had a, a round of layoffs in December that was tough. And, you know, the other leaders in the company really weren't on board and there was a lot of blame going around about it, you know, and not a lot of self-awareness, I think. Um, and, you know, at the time I was kind of thinking like, oh, we gotta, we gotta take a step back. Like I saw, I saw it there and I, you know, everybody said cut once, cut deep. You know, and I, I I looked at it that way, but cutting deep was, I still didn't cut as deep as I really probably should have to get to the place where I felt like I could really start over and grow again in the right way. So I think really it wasn't about the realization. It was about in March when all the like, okay, we know COVID's coming. We know we need to do something like I believe in not making the same mistake twice, you know, and I kind of looked at scenarios for what is the half measure? How are we going to get through this? How much work do we have? And like, that was really the kind of time to say, I know these people are my friends. I know I care about them. I know I've believed in them for a long time. I know this is going to be tough and they're probably going to vilify me for it a little bit because they're not going to get it. But I couldn't see any way to get through this crisis without alignment, you know, without all being on the same page. And yeah. I, like, we couldn't get there before this. I was like, I don't know how we're going to get through this if, if, it's, if we're not aligned internally. So it was just about, I think, having the will to act, you know, more than anything else. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the really, um, I want to circle back to the word will, because I think it's a really interesting word. Um, but but before, I, I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, the idea of cutting deep in this case wasn't about cutting people so that you could, you know, make the revenue. It wasn't about cutting people so you could make the numbers work. It was about cutting people so you could make the vision work. 
It was about yeah. Well, it was both, uh, but yes, yeah, it was. It was both. But that, like, the difference, like the 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 you know the not going deep enough in in December twenty nineteen, like the sure if you would have cut people, you would have taken you know payroll and expenses off the table. But really, what I hear you saying is that the problem with not cutting people was you still had a kind of a a, a team that wasn't super aligned. That's right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So like the cutting deeper there, like we probably would have been able and we were sort of just from a number standpoint, building back from that already, like we saw a path to success again, at least financially and with the amount of work we had, right. you know, but it was a bigger machine and harder to sustain, but we thought we could do it. And I think that was the that was a little bit of the the the, the place where it wasn't being completely truthful, where like I could do it, but it wasn't. It, you know, it, that that idea that, you know, companies kind of get aligned and supercharge and, you know, head into the future, like it feels like that now to me, you know, and uh, I, I, I can see it. And, uh, you know, another thing is weird is like, I have often had this challenge of ego where I feel like, you know, to make it about you and your vision and take charge and say, no, this is the way we're going to do it because it's what I believe always felt, uh, strange to me like like this idea of uh, even even in uh, you know over 2019 i said i was working on like learning my what really what my vision and my values were uh, partly like even that process was a real struggle because i was trying to do it in a participatory way for a while and i just couldn't do it and eventually i had to shut people out of that conversation and do it myself and then it clicked so i kind of learned right. that lesson that like you know making it yours doesn't make you a jerk, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, and I like, I, I like, I just, I like it when it, we're having fun and everybody's nice and we all get along. But like, you, you know, and and that's important to me in that spirit. I don't know. I think it, maybe it comes from the theater and like growing up, putting on a show in a barn. Like that's the energy that I'm always trying to recapture with my business. Yes. It's like a bunch of people in a creative pursuit that are just all working 24 hours for no money because they love the thing that they're creating. And like, that's how I grew up. Totally. You know, so I've always been trying to get back to that place. And uh, so it made it not feel like uh, right to say, no, sorry, this is the way I'm going to run this. But uh, I think that was doing people a disservice. Yeah. And there's and there's so much there. Right. I mean, I, I w what just jumped into my mind when you were talking about that was um, was kids. And I know we both have kids. And just I think one of the ideas that I believe about parenting is like kids need guardrails. Like, and if you've got the right guardrails and the right structure in place, then you can give kids a lot of freedom within that. But like, yeah, like, and and I don't mean to suggest that the people that work for, you know, I don't mean to suggest well, that employees I mean, there, are- There's a lot of overlap between parenting and running a company. You could probably do a whole episode uh, oh, on totally. that. Like, but there is a lot to be learned in both directions. So yeah. I, yes, it is like that. And and I think I think that there's some like if you're clear, then it becomes really easy to say yes or no to things. It becomes really easy to say, you know, yeah, that project fits within our vision, or you know, or or no, like that's not something that like that might be something we can pursue three years from now, but we're not gonna do it now. And it also becomes, so that's the external, but it also becomes easier to do that internally. Like, hey, you know, so-and-so, this isn't how we work together, right? Like if you, yeah, right. if you bring the, the vision to it, like you, you know, and then people also know what they, like that they can come to you with these things and they can say, hey, like I didn't feel good about this and they'll know. Um, right. 
Yeah. Yeah. The ego, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I think that there is, um, there's kind of a fundamental difference between like ego and knowing, like, Mm -hmm. I think you can, things can, and I think the best, um, like, uh, a lot of really successful business owners, entrepreneurs, they they will just they will just know something and they will they will know like this is the direction we should go and or this is what I should do, um, you know to the point where they even just kind of do that to open a and that's that's how they open a business you know um, yeah yeah and I think that's different than ego and I think but I think it's hard I think it's hard to kind of tease those apart and I think if it is ego at work it can feel a lot like knowing and you can kind of fool yourself into thinking like you're, you know, you're tapping yeah. into some truth. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. And it's knowing the difference. And I think in that mix is also confidence, you know, and like there yeah. are many times like on a project level as a creative director, I generally have a tremendous amount of confidence in what I think is the right answer. And I lead clients that way and they respond to it. So like you, I may say something and somebody says, no, I don't want that. And I'll say, are you sure? Because this is why, you know, and I really like without even thinking about it or hesitating it, I will just dive into how I feel about what the right answer is. Cause I've done that my whole life. Right. You know, and I've been doing, I've been, I, you know, I'm 45 years old. I've essentially been doing the same thing professionally since I was 12. Like I started doing this kind of work as a kid. So I'm very confident, you know, when it comes to point of view and, you know, I may back off or whatever, depending on what the client thinks or whatever, but like I, I, I will give it the college try repeatedly and, and act totally. Whereas with running the business. It took me a long time and there was levels of matters of degree, you know, and now I think this last shift was another ratcheting up of that confidence. Yeah, that's cool. But like, but like having the confidence to say like, Hey, like somebody may not like what I say, or they may not agree, but like I've listened and I know internally that I've internalized what people have said, but I believe this and that's what I'm going to do. And that doesn't make me a jerk. It just makes me right. Like, specific like I had to learn that I think some people just naturally you know uh, are that way and I I think for me I don't know what it is but it took me uh, you know to to learn that as a as a business leader that confidence you know is has taken me a, a kind of a journey about the last three or four years has really been about that you know for me that's cool I think what you're talking about is is kind of it's this it's this reflective process of personal growth. Um, and everybody does that a little bit differently. So like, what, how, do, how do you do that? How do you, what's your sort of... I mean, I do it very consciously. Like I actively pursue it. And uh, like, I, I think that it's uh, like, I, I like learning. I like, uh, you know, I like new things, whatever shiny object is, you know, I get excited about things and, uh, you know, I'm pretty self-reflective, uh, you know, maybe to a point that's annoying to people around me. So, you know, I think... <laughs> Uh, you know, that, that I, and I see like that growth mindset as uh, a priority for me. So, you know, it's, it's something where I'm, I'm very open to, to change in myself and feel like uh, I constantly have been reinventing, you know, what I do as a leader. So I, I think it comes easily to me. It doesn't mean that you're learning the right lessons all the time or making the right changes. And a lot of times, like I learn about something and, you know, try to impose it on all the people around me in my organization. And that probably is irritating, but I think, uh, you know, and again, over the last few years, I've learned to slow that down a little bit, but uh, I, I think, 
you know, but that, that I, I think it's self-awareness is probably the single most important thing for being a good leader and uh, like learning when you're in your own way, you know? Yes. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, for one of the ways that I've articulated that just kind of to myself and more broadly in the last, probably the last two years, which is maybe even less, maybe a year and a half, which is when my like journey of like, let's call it reinvention or whatever the right word is, has kind of really kicked into to high gear. And part of that was, you know, spurred on by divorce. Part of it was spurred on by um, therapy and just kind of moving, like moving to a different way in the world. But one of the things that I quickly realized was like, oh, like there's no difference between the work of, you know, showing up and doing quote unquote work in the work day than doing work of a personal and reflective nature. And so like, like I just realized that like, oh, like the fears that I'm uncovering that are, you know, and trying to figure out where they're coming from and that are holding me back or whatever, like that's actually my job. Like as a, as a business owner, like, you know, as somebody who doesn't show up and get a paycheck from somebody else, like your job uh, or my job is to like, figure out my own shit and optimize my own psyche yeah, so that be I can smarter actually and better than you were yesterday. Exactly. Right? Yeah, know, exactly. Like exactly. Um, yeah, that was kind of cool. Um, that was like sort of an interesting realization to be like, Oh yeah. Like I like, if I have the inkling to like, yeah, I should spend, you know, 30 minutes on a Tuesday, like journaling about something that just came up or like this feeling that I noticed on, you know, a, a, a business development call with like a potential consulting client or whatever. It's like, that's the work. Yeah, like, you know, I, I got uh, through a workshop. I got that a workshop I didn't even like uh, that I had back in December, <laughs> I, I but the speaker, so I won't mention the speaker, but they, they, they talked about the, somehow it came up this idea of release and the Sonoma method. And, uh, uh, you know, I started reading about that and it was also right about the time I got into uh, floating for meditation, like going to the oh, float, the float tank. tank. Like the yeah. Tank. Yeah. And I was like reading this Sedona method stuff and I was like starting to do like float and meditation and like it was uh, super powerful for me to recognize like how much, you know, my own emotions were preventing my we talk about that will right that inaction that i see something yeah. but why am i not doing something about it and like learning to release the emotions about it around it so that i could be more objective and say you know what like back to like oh i feel like a jerk well maybe but like so what let that go like is this right or wrong empirically you know can you feel those emotions and process them and separate them you know and like uh you know i think that was also another accelerant and it was and it was around the time that i was going through that that december kind of layoff period and you know and knowing that oh okay if i do the thing that i think is right for my business uh people aren't going to like me people are going to be mad at me you know and that's okay i can live with that you know, is, was like, I think, and then when, with COVID, like then there was this sense of urgency where it just didn't matter anymore how I felt about it. Yeah. So, but I was already kind of greased to be ready to do it anyway. Cause I had been working on it for the last couple of months. And it was like, I would have these conversations with my business partner a little bit uh, where, you know, you would kind of say, well, what would I do if I had a magic wand? And then at some point you got to say to yourself, like, I do have a magic wand. It's my business. Like, totally. why am I not doing the things that I think would make me? And, and you know, and I'm just like, I'm not happy and I'm not having any fun. 
And those things are important to me. Yes. So why don't I change something? And, you know, part of the reason is because I don't want to hurt people, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, like, I, I think uh, maybe you and I talked about this, like in a large company, uh, and I don't know if this is true. Like, I feel like as companies are bigger and you have distance between yourself and, you know, the day-to-day people, like it becomes easier to make strategic decisions that impact people's lives. But in a small business, I think, especially one where you're kind of doing this fun, creative thing. And, you know, I, I lean towards this community spirit and a culture of togetherness, you know, even when you're, uh, when you're in a position where you're wanting to eliminate people for lack of alignment, not because they failed or did anything terrible or you don't like each other, but just because you're not aligned anymore, uh, that was a real hard threshold for me to cross, uh, like because of all those emotions. But once I started kind of processing and looking at myself and saying, like, objectively, you know what would make this functional. Have the confidence, one, number your number one, that you're right, you know, and number two, like the the will to accept the 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 way you're going to feel about it. You're going to feel bad. It's going to hurt. And it doesn't matter. You have to do it anyway. You know, like it was kind of like this combination of all those things coming together. You know, I mean, everything like, I don't know that I could have cut deeper in December, but if I hadn't gone through that and started basically meditating and, you know, learning to release how I feel about it, I don't know that I would have been mentally prepared for what I did in, in April, you know, Uh, but uh, you know, it, it, it really was a lot about that, about being able to be, uh, objective and just say, all right, you know, you can separate how you feel about it and from what you think is the right thing to do. Totally. Yeah. The other, um, so the, the Sedona method I have used, um, Hal Dwoskin is, is the author of at least one of the yeah. books on it. Um, and I'll, I'll put that, I'll put that in the show notes. Is that the one that you use? I think so. He was like a disciple of the main guy that started in the sixties, right? You know, and he, then he wrote a book in like the eighties. That's the one that I, yeah. you know, so. And it's, it's powerful stuff. Um, and yeah. um, I learned about it through, there's a book called the 15 commitments to conscious leadership, which is by um, Jim Dethmer and um, uh, what's his co-author's name. Um, there's two, Diana Chapman, and there's another one. I can't remember her name, but I'll put that in the show notes too. But that's a that's a good um, book um, where it sort of takes this idea of leading leading from a seat of awareness and breaks it up into a bunch of different kind of what that means in a bunch of different ways. Um, so one is uh, the first chapter is all about taking responsibility. So are you taking 100% responsibility or are you falling into the hero victim villain triangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I notice that in my relationships. I notice when I am and when I'm not. It's really a, a helpful tell. But I also use it in, you know, consulting uh, and, and coaching stuff because yeah. when, when, whenever anybody feels at the effect of something, it's like, oh, interesting. Like, how, how, like, what's, what's the next part of this story? Like, what's the part that that, that kind of feeling of victimhood or, or villainhood, um, I don't know if villainhood is a word, is like kind of what's, what's, that, what's that masking? Um, yeah, yeah, what is that all about, you know, and, and, and why is it, and is it enough, you know, to, like, do you want to let that, that feeling that, of that be what controls yeah. how you act? Yes, you know? yes. And you can choose, and sometimes the answer is yes, you know, yes. <laughs> right? Totally. You know, I, And I think that's okay. You could say like, hey, maybe this isn't the best business decision right now, but how I feel about it is more important to me than that. 
you yes. know, and, uh, and I guess that's where you just get into what your values are. Oh, but yeah, uh, and and I think you know you use the word will, which is I I I am glad we're getting back to that because I think I think of will as like the ability to do something hard that you don't really want to do or that you have a lot of resistance to, and anytime I feel like there's something I have resistance to or there's something I'm avoiding. I'm always thinking about, okay, well, like, what are my underlying commitments here? Like, what are the things I'm trying to avoid? Because, I mean, you know this, like, you're in a, like, you're working on something you love, you're working on a creative project, you get in a flow, like, you don't need will to get into a flow, right? So, like, right. when you're thinking about these business decisions, it's like, not like, why can't I push this forward? It's like, like, what are the things, like, what are the, the secret things that I haven't acknowledged yet that are standing in the way of that? Yeah, well, that's one of the, I think, things that was most key for me about the Sedona Method is not just releasing your emotions, but releasing releasing resistance. Yes. You know, why, why am I not doing something, you know, what, like, and what is it in kind of being self-reflective about why am I, if I know something, you know, on an objective level, that is a thing that I think is the right thing to do why am I resistant to it? You yeah. Know, and, uh, like, and, and releasing resistance or, or letting yourself feel it and process it and say, Oh, okay. I've actually made a decision in the back of my mind, but I'm not doing it. And I guess that is like, I, and that's the, the inverse of having the will to do it. It's totally not, not engaging that way. Uh, like what, a, what, why am I so resistant to it? And, you know, and a lot of times the answer is cause it feels bad, you know, right. Uh, yeah. but, like that's that's enough you know yeah and, or uh, it's it's fucking scary right i mean that yeah. was that was like for me so my my like kind of arc of this i think we can see really clearly in um i mean it's a the fact that you and i are talking right now because for like for you know i wrote this book came out uh meltdown came out in 2018 and i sort of had this really ego-driven attitude like like all right books out there like you guys can buy it wherever you want to buy it. You know, you know, yeah, what I mean? like, right. um, it's at Amazon. Feel free to go take a look. And, and, you know, I think that was, that was both ego, but also fear. And I think those two things are, are often related. Um, yeah. Fear of sort of putting myself out there um, in a way that didn't feel perfect to me. Right. I mean, the thing about, I, I'm, I'm so proud of the work that, that Andrash, that my, my co-author and business partner, I'm so proud of the work we did on Meltdown. Um, is really tremendous, and um, I think what's um, what's also true about a book is you get it to be as close to perfect as you possibly can be for what it is, right? It's like it's a, a long process. It's highly edited and highly kind of um, you know produced and controlled, and then it hap and then it's out there in the world, and like that's very different than you know banging out a newsletter post. And so I think I had this this fear of putting work out there. What if it, what if it wasn't thoughtful enough? What if people rejected it? What if nobody read it? You know, I, I heard somebody mm -hmm. recently talk about how like they were running an event and they were worried people weren't going to come and they didn't want to invite more people who might come and see how few people came. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's just like mm -hmm. this, like kind of like wacky mental loop that we, we get into with ourselves. Um, but you know, now that I realize the kind of, and they were more, I mean, that's the other thing too, that it wasn't just one fear. It was like a couple of fears that were sort of interacting and creating this tension 
once I was able to see that clearly and then let those go, like now it's like the newsletter is fun. It's like, it's right. Right. Yeah. It's great. Well, I mean, I, I very similar uh, feelings around fear, you know, and I think another change that uh, this crisis has produced is, you know, how we sell and market our company and the projects that we want, that we're doing, because there's always been a layer and this thing hanging out there of like, in addition to people coming to us with their creative visions so that we can help them develop them and realize them. I have also had this kind of bucket list of my own ideas and you know kind of in the last year you know part of one of the things in december when we cut back and laid off uh by uh the person that was doing bd for us and really for the year before he and i were doing bd together but he was driving and i would be along for the ride so the way we would talk about it is he would wind me up and put me in the room and you know like i would just do the talking but he was doing all the pavement pounding to get in that room and then it was like this pivot to realizing after he was gone that i had to do that myself and then getting even deeper to that, like how, how I had to go back more to my roots and say, well, how did I used to make work when it was just the Gary show and I was a freelancer and I was trying to get stuff going and I didn't know how I did it. It like, it seemed like magic. I just always worked, you know, and totally. uh, like now uh, I realized too, that I had this bucket list of ideas for projects and kind of thought leadership around where the industries I work in are going. And like, this idea of, you know, skating to where the puck is going like yeah uh, so w i realized that to create work and especially now i had to come up with my own projects and then go put together the teams and go sell them rather than waiting people to come to us and that's what i'm doing now and i have found that with both my team and with vendors and partners that i have relationships with as i've called them and said hey here's this idea let's put something together and try to bring it to market and get someone to pay for it i've i've got a lot of momentum with that yeah. going and those people that are around me that I enjoy working with and who enjoy working with me, we're like, hell yeah, we'll do that with you. And uh, we're all excited about it. And we're, we looked at kind of a long-term idea we had for uh, a, a product that we could sell to, to uh, retail landlords and owners in an entertainment product for shopping spaces. And rather than say, well, yeah, but this is this big esoteric thing, how do we dial it in so someone's going to buy it right now so that it come Christmas you know, they can have an event because people by Christmas, you know, take the leap that by Christmas, people are going to want to go to an attraction and get someone to invest in it and b generate our own work. Stop waiting for people to come to us. And in the last six weeks, we've got like three of those things going. And it's something awesome. that I talked about for years, yes. but I just didn't have like the confidence. And then, and also I was afraid of it and uh, yeah. you know, almost afraid of like, what happens if you're successful? What happens if yes. someone buys it and now you have to do it? You know, totally. <laughs> uh, totally. But, uh, but yet we're doing it and we're having a ball. And also it's like, we used to have this thought exercise, like imagine if we could do what we do for our clients with no clients, you know, and we could do it faster and better in a way because we, it's not about you remove this human element of having to educate a client and, and kind of, you know, guide them through decision-making when it's not their subject matter. And at the end of the day, you got to do what they want. And you're like, we would always say, you can't control, we can make it look awesome. We can't control whether or not it's going to be successful. Whereas if you're developing your own stuff, now you have the extra pressure of like, people are going to expect it to be successful and you can't hide. So like that was yeah. all super scary. But uh, it's really like, and I was afraid of that. And, and also with that lack of alignment, I didn't have support, you know, from the, from all those people. So I would bring that up and it was like, oh, here's your little fantasy projects, you know, whereas now the team that I have left 
and I are aligned of like, man, we could make, we could make our lives so much easier. Like if we could develop our own thing and go out and sell it. And, uh, like that, that, that's, that's exciting to us. It's actually more aligned with the values that we have of like, we want to have fun doing it. We want to be creative. We don't want to be told by, you know, a corporation that what the right answer is creatively. Like if we create our own work, we get to decide. So it, it, it's very liberating. And, you know, it's, it may, it's not like the whole plan now, but it's a, it's a key part of our sales strategy is not just the work that comes to us and marketing ourselves as providing a service, but it's generating our own attractions and entertainment experiences that we can bring to market. So it's a real shift, you know, uh, and uh, I'm excited about it. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's not the whole plan and it probably, it, it, you know, probably, shouldn't be the whole plan because one of the cool things if you can play on both sides of the space is you're going to do something and put it out there somebody's going to see it and like your work is going to be you know the bd in and of itself right like right right that's the idea is you get the flywheel going right exactly something cool out there and people get excited and it perpetuates yeah So, uh, and, and, you know, not everybody that's left on my team that has some sales responsibility thinks that way, or is, you know, like, uh, and we're still here to support other, you know, people with our actual tactical skill set. And I think you can do both. Yes. But, you know, for me, I have to recognize that my passion really is that creative leadership. And I know that I can lean into it harder if there isn't a client. You know, but it that, that that's scary. It comes with responsibility because you're when you have a client at the end of the day, they're the ultimate decision maker. And in this case, you know, it's us. So it's me. So that's that's scarier. But, you know, it's also more fun, you know, back back to pushing your limits. Right. And what are you doing before and staying out of your comfort zone? You know, if there isn't a little bit of uh, of kind of risk to it. Uh, I, I, I don't get as excited about it. You know, I love biting off more than I can chew. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I think, I think, you know, I recognize something in what you were saying, which is um, I'll say the work that I have done, the work that I've won that I've been most excited about in, in the arc of my business has been work where I won it by being curious. Like I won it by uh, somebody coming to me with a really big problem and like, first of all, saying like, okay, I think there's something really powerful in saying like, um, yeah, I don't think you're thinking about this in the right way, right? Like, yeah, there's something like in that which which is really valuable and really powerful. And not every client or potential client takes that the right way. But boy, would I rather learn that when we're talking about a potential project rather than when we're six months into it and like, you know, it's a slog and they're not open to input. So, but for me, that curiosity piece being like, huh, I don't know how to do this, but here are some things I think we could try. Um, what One of the things that happens is when I get closer, like when I win work and when I get closer to it, that, like there's a part of me that, gets afraid again and is like, oh God, how am I going to do this? I don't know what I'm doing. And it's like, well, yes, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but like, I was upfront about that. And like, nobody really knows yeah. what, what they're doing. You know, I do a lot of work around in, in both big and smaller organizations around like how to get culture change, how to change the way people work, how to help people like, you know, it's not so much the like big McKinsey style, like we're going to do a big reorg. It's more like, um, like this project I'm doing at Microsoft, which they're um, very open about, which is cool because I actually get to talk about it. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, lawyers have been trained 
in a very specific way and they have been doing their lawyer thing for you know decades many of them at microsoft um some of them you know at law firms and then at microsoft and now we're going to ask them now microsoft is asking them to innovate like boy that's a big like switch to go yeah, from shift. yeah exactly to go from a kind of like artisanal worker who's working on a you know a document or a process that's in front of you to someone who is asking a question around like oh how could we leverage technology to make this process more efficient like those seem like two different skill sets but to make this change successful you need to get them kind of mashed up together in one person or at least sort of start to take steps to do that um and yeah you know there's things that we know about how to do this well and how not to do it well, but we don't know what's going to work. Like we don't know, right. like, you know, like there's, you know, there's people and personalities and history and organizational structure and the limits of technology and the power. It's just like, it's so cool. It's really fun. And my favorite part about it is the, the, the client team is the, the team at the client, the team at Microsoft, that's like kind of catalyzing this effort. Like, they are super open and curious. And so they're really growth oriented. And so they're just, they're awesome to work with on this stuff. But, you know, if there was an answer, then like, like, yeah, it, it just, it wouldn't, there's no answer. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how to. Yeah. You know, it's, talking about this, it makes me think of for a long time, I, one of the sales challenges I've had with my company is that, you know, I kind of say that we're a, we're a serial generalist, you know, we, we play in a lot of different spaces that our skill set touches. And in almost all those spaces, there are specialists. So whether it's uh, studio television or theme parks or museums, there are people that just do that. Right. And we're often competing against those people and we lose to them a lot of the time. And, you know, in a way, like, talking about alignment with clients, like one of the things I've learned to do, and it started out as a little bit of a, like, I got to come up with some, you know, bullshit around this to get people to, uh, to like, to win against, against people who are specialists when we're not. But I, you know, started talking to people about this idea where, you know, where the way that I think and the way that we work is a little bit agnostic of the industry. And I think what that does for you is you don't do everything the same way. Yeah. You know, and yes. I kind of, you know, coined this phrase, obstacle based design, you know, where if you're working backwards from the challenges and you see that as a, uh, a benefit, the obstacles are not negative. Like that's, an, people have this negative connotation and in design where you go oh well we want a blue sky we want a big concept like i don't really like doing working that way i like to start with what are my oh you only have six dollars okay well let's come up with the best guest experience we can for six dollars oh like you know there's a big i-beam running through the middle of your space or you know the hvac hangs so low that everybody's going to see it like i would rather embrace those obstacles up front and work backwards for them because i think it's spurs creativity you know totally. and a lot of people but I, but i think that goes back to this idea of being a generalist when you're not uh committed to some absolute you know rote way of doing your process but it's really more about stepping back and saying okay what is the situation what are the challenges what are we trying to achieve what are our roadblocks let's get all that on the table first and work backwards out from that you know because ultimately design is problem solving you know i i think that it allows you to, to supercharge that generalism and it, it allows you to compete with specialists and I think be better, you yeah. know, um, 
as long as you have subject matter expertise to call on so you don't do stupid things, you know, but uh, you're like, but I just don't start there. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, I think there is, you know, the, the, the bullshit thing is something that all of us in a sales role are, are tempted to do. <laughs> um, but there's also a way in which I think it's easy to forget that the, the real power in sales or, or like one of the real powers in sales is to disqualify somebody quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can have a conversation with a client and just say exactly what you just said, and like, Hey, we're not specialists. Like, you know, if you really want someone who's like really dialed into, you know, whatever, how, um, you know, aquarium, like uh, amusements adjacent to aquariums is going to work, right, or whatever right. the niche is, like, like you probably shouldn't go with us. You should probably like our compet, like these competitors do that. But if you want something that's going to be like groundbreaking and engaging, and like you know meet guests kind of amidst all these constraints and like then we're your firm right because we're yeah yeah um, well and the irony is you know like i don't promise like it may not be groundbreaking and engaging because everybody wants that and everybody says that but a lot of times you know the caveat is like oh by the way you know we've only got the, that six dollars that i was talking about or you know it's got to load in in four days or you know whatever it is you know so like starting with like uh, i mean every client starts every project with a lot on something that's unique that's never seen anybody's ever seen before it's a game changer and that's great but you have to be committed to a certain kind of process to get that yes you know and a certain amount of freedom and it's not always money but like it's it's something you know, you have to be, be willing to iterate, be willing to fail. You know, most unique projects in my world happened organically, you know, in a way that if a corporation had been behind them and funding them, they never would have happened in the first place. I mean, one of the foundational projects that we do is uh, for uh, Marriott at their Gaylord Hotels. It's a Christmas ice attraction that now we do it in five cities and there's IP behind it and they spend millions of dollars on it every year and they make millions of dollars. But when it started, it was one entertainment director in a hotel in Nashville that like took a chance on some promoter that wanted to bring over this thing. And it was that proverbial putting on a show in a barn that I love to do. And it succeeded and it grew organically from there. But if you tried to go back in time and sell that at that time, uh, at the quality and level that we execute it now and the scale never would have happened yeah so really like starting with your obstacles in that environment and saying okay well this is risky and we're going to be safe and we're going to start it and we only we won't really know how to design a interactive environment made out of ice that you know 150,000 people are going to walk through but we're going to figure it out and we're going to learn as we go and like the client was willing to commit to that so now 20 years later, they have this unique thing that is, is magical that nobody else has. But most things I think that are really that unique don't start that way. So like, I really prefer that starting with the starting, start with your limitations and let them drive your decision-making. And you know, like that, that's uh, that, that, that to me is, uh, it, it makes sense. And it's also efficient for people too. Like you don't waste time and money. Totally uh, do, do, doing that. And, you know, but like you were saying, like that felt originally like a justification for not being a specialist. And you know, we were talking about confidence to bring it back to that. Now, over time, I've been doing that long enough that I have a confidence that there is actual value in that philosophy. Yes. And if a client doesn't see it when I present it to them, then, then maybe like it's not, it's not worth pursuing, you know, because I'm not going to be able to please that client. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's sort of a nice, it's a nice filter. And, and, and I'll say that, I mean, you know, knowing your background, knowing the, the theater world, having 
in a very amateurish way dabbled in you know tech direction myself set building as a as a a ute um uh and then also but just it for for meltdown um the the last chapter is all about crisis and um you know the one of the sets of people that manage crisis really well are like you know film and theater people film film and theater crews right and Mm -hmm. um there's this there's actually this great research where these um two researchers uh looked both at they wrote a paper that was both about SWAT teams and film crews uh and like what what they have in common and one of the things I mean the cool thing about film crews is there's just there's a lot of um there's really just an ability to like innovate and plug in gaps you know like Mm -hmm. somebody doesn't show up well somebody else knows how to run that piece of equipment and somebody else knows how to work that camera and so you just get this like kind of like real-time reshuffling of people. And I think that, that you know, uh, ability to kind of improvise is probably like a huge, like, it's not even improvising. It's really like, like coming up with creative solutions under constraints, which is exactly the thing that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, like I said, I think I said earlier, anything's possible like that, that we worked that into our branding, you know, and that's kind of what our catchphrase and what we lead with. And when I first came up with that and started using it, people internally were sort of like, well, that's not really true. Anything's not possible. I'm like, well, I'm not saying everything's possible. But, you know, look at, uh, there's a great documentary that they made after uh, Game of Thrones ended uh where it is called uh, the watch is ended or something and it is a it's about the production design of game of thrones and it talks about you know season over season how they learned and how they changed and how they adapted and how they were able to accomplish what they did and i actually pointed to my team and said go watch this documentary right because by they started out and it was just like every other tv show you shot but as it got more successful and more ambitious by the time they got to that last season and the production designer has quoted it and says the first seven seasons were just practice for the eighth season <laughs> because in that eighth season they were basically producing a feature eight feature films you know on the budget on you know in half the time on 20 percent of the budget and they did it you know and they came up with all these strategies to do it because they had to adapt and they had done you know the first seven seasons they had done all this location shooting but in that eighth season they realized that what they were doing was too ambitious and they turned around they looked out the window at the parking lot this huge parking lot at their building and they said we're going to build this we're going to recreate the city we've been shooting in in this parking lot and they did it in like, you know, very it's short incredible. amount of time. They totally fabricated the entire set, you know, and they, they just adapted to the constraints and they didn't look at the creative and say, well, we can't do it and we can't shoot this in the city. They were like, okay, what is the constraint we have? How can we get more control? Oh, we're going to have to do this on a set. Where are we going to do it? Oh, I don't know. There's no studio big enough. Well, what if we just did it in this giant field behind this building? And they did it, you know, and it's a great lesson of like, uh, you know, working with the obstacles to coming up with better solutions. And also that idea of of anything's possible if you, if you put your mind to it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I love it. That ties in so much together because also they wouldn't have been able to do that season one. They wouldn't have had, the confidence no, or the no. skills or the knowing they wouldn't have known that that was the thing they should do yeah yeah and they may not have had the you know the juice to go to the the, the producers and say well like this is what we're going to do and this is our choice and totally like, this is this, 
may seem more expensive, but it's actually going to be uh, better because of all these other reasons. And they, they, you know, the knowing and the say, this is the strategy. Uh, and it was a complete pivot from what they had done for those first seven seasons. Totally. Where it was all location. That's awesome. Yeah, that that show is really cool. It actually shows too, you know, it's getting in the weeds, but at the end, like everything's all destroyed and they built the destroyed version of the set. And then on top of it, they did the the, the undestroyed version. So good. So that, so that they could actually peel it away when they got to that part, like, and it would be underneath and they wouldn't have to go in and like take the time to stop, pause production and like retrofit it to look ruined the they ruined it first and then they built it over the top of it that's brilliant isn't that brilliant um so i look forward to having you on as a guest in like what 18 months when you've written your book on obstacle-based design and you're you're promoting that um because i think this is such cool stuff um this is really, really awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's one of those things where I, I said it, you know, like two years ago. And then it was like, oh, and it was when I was working with uh, on my branding and everything. And the firm I was working with said, oh, you should like, that's a thing. And I was like, is that something or is it nothing? Because, you know, back to confidence, right? The things I think that we know the strongest in our hearts that guide us day to day are the things that seem like nobody's going to think it's special or they care about it. Because it's so obvious to you. You're like, well, this isn't news. You know, this is, I'm not telling anybody anything that they don't already know. Like it seems so plain. And I think I've started to realize that those things that seem like the most boring to me are actually the things that are my most strongly held beliefs and that are actually have the most value, you know, yeah. uh, like, 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 like the things that have the most value are the things that are just plain as plain to you as a nose on your face. And uh, for me, it's like getting, like getting over the hump of, why is anybody going to care about this? I'm sure everybody knows this. And then you start talking about it and you realize, no, it's actually your unique perspective. Totally. I don't know if you've read the book, The Big Leap, Gay Hendricks. Um, no. uh, it's great. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes too. Um, also a referral from the 15 commitments. Um, uh-huh. uh, but you know, the other thing that I think is true about that kind of um, that, what you just described is that thing is also it's it's easy and intuitive to you whereas if somebody else were to try to do that or think in that way it would be um it would be hard and and hendrix calls this your zone of genius it's like the thing that you that you do that is you do in a way that is kind of orders of magnitude better than everybody else and it you make it look easy because it is it does feel very natural to you um, yeah i mean it's kind of like your unique brand proposition yeah. or whatever too where it's like what makes you special about your point of view and uh that that you uh you just embody and and i think it's easy to discount those things because they seem so obvious to you yeah you know? and you're like you know and and, uh, and i think back to that idea of self-reflection and is at some point you go oh wait a minute like this thing that seems obvious to me is actually unique to me and other people don't think this way and we're talking about it as an advantage right now. It's also sometimes a disadvantage and why you can't connect with somebody is because you just they're thinking in a diametrically opposed way yeah. to how they think. And I've actually had employees like that where, you know, that idea of like starting with the big flashy concept art and beautiful stuff that everybody's going to get excited about and fall in love with, like that I don't really believe in. Like I'll use that tool if I have to, 
but I don't really like to show anybody something that we can't actually do and that I know fits their constraints. But with somebody that doesn't, that thinks the other way is like, why are you showing somebody all this process work? Why are you showing them these crappy drawings, you know, that are like explaining where you're going and moving in this slow way that's like starts really boring. Like people that think that way can't at all recognize, like they just don't, it's just different, you know, and it's not wrong. It just kind of depends on who the audience is. You know? But it's not wrong, but actually um, you, I'm going to say a very strong statement that probably isn't true, but we can start there and then walk it back. Like you shouldn't be hiring or working with those people. Right. Well, right, right, right. Part of this, this, this burning it down was realizing that, you know, yeah. embracing that. Yeah. In fact, that's a great, I mean, you know, we could do a whole other episode about interviewing people. Cause I used to do hundreds of interviews in, in like a, a pretty like selective environment in, in, um, on wall street. And, um, I think it's just fascinating, but I think figuring out like what your gates are that people have to pass through. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's been a real learning curve too. You know, and what's the criteria and yeah. for me, it was, how did I get in this position? And it was like, well, hiring people I work with in collaborative project situations that were successful, didn't make them successful employees for me. Right. Necessarily. Right. right. Totally. You know, because they needed something different from them. And, you know, I've learned maybe this is, you know, uh, part of that hiring thing is that idea, the concept of hiring for behavior over skill set was not something I used to understand. And I think that now I got to be careful because I'll hire the behavior over the skill set every time. And you, you still need the skill set. Right? Totally. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you my, my, like my, you know, two cents on that, which is that, you know, the behavior is the thing that can't change. Right. Or is like very, like you just, you'll drive yourself crazy if you hire someone who has a different behavior than what you want or expect. Cause I don't think you can, it's not, it's not trainable without a lot of, of work. Therapy, um, right? Therapy, right. Exactly. And like, yeah, you, you can't like send your new employee to like a six month, you know, therapy, therapy. Right, offsite. Right. Um, uh, and the skill set, like, I think what the way I think about it is you've got to give people just really like, objective task-based testing um for whatever the skill set is that that you're you 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 need is the kind of floor for what they do so right. you know when i i mean and this is like such a trivial example but um but it's also not like when i hired uh uh rain who's my my um ea um you know we we put a a posted a job a couple of places and the what you had to do is you had to do a practical like skills-based test and it didn't take long it was like 15 minutes it was just a google form but like you had to like look at an email from somebody and choose a spot to schedule an appointment for me with them because uh -huh. managing my calendar is a, is a big part of of what makes my life go smoothly and and um it's interesting that like of the 20 people that applied, only three people were like, only three people got that right enough to be like, for me to be like, yeah, they could actually do this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's, I mean, it's good if you can come up with a, a bit of quantifiable. And I guess you can look at that. Like, that's in my profession, a lot of times that's where the portfolio base comes in, where you're like, okay, you can literally yeah, do that. Yeah, totally. Right. But uh, but then once you get to that threshold, then the next layer really is 
practice. Because I think you're saying that, yeah, it is maybe behavior over skill set, but you do have to establish the floor of the skill set first. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I mean, I, I've, not, I've not hired, you know, creative people uh, where the portfolio is what speaks for them. But I would also say that, like, you know, the portfolio is, like, very the, the skill the portfolio is the outcome and the part of the skill set is the process right and so yeah um i don't know i'd be curious about like can you can you give somebody a design brief and get them to like talk about what they think about it or you know even write up a paragraph of like different directions they might take it like and i don't know what the rules are but like like to me you know i think i guess another thing another belief that i've inherited from my hiring experience is that, um, again, this is probably, I don't want to sound too certain of this, but like people who are sloppy communicators are also sloppy thinkers. Um, yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, 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 but it's, it's sort of, it can be dangerous because you always want to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's like, well, maybe they didn't really mean it that way. Maybe they didn't. But like, if someone can't give you a well-structured answer to a problem, it means they don't have a well-structured mental model of of what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and you know, with that portfolio thing too, like I think, and I've learned over time is to look at the work and, but it, the work doesn't speak for itself. And that is where you get into behavior. Because when you ask people, you know, people show you their work and then you start asking them the stories behind it. You know, and even simple questions like, well, how long did this take you, you know, or, you know, show me, show me a project where the outcome was bad. That's when you really get beyond that and like learn, learn a lot more about the behaviors and, totally. you know, how, how someone's going to characterize the process of the work and how they get to it. But, you know, I mean, uh, I, I used to think of it, and I haven't thought about this in a while, but we used to think about it as kind of like there's three tools. So you, when you hire someone, you want them to be able to like have the people skills to like manage the client. You want them to have the technical skills, you know, when it comes to like software, uh, you know, and understanding what they can do. And then you want, uh, want them to have the creativity or the design chops, like just the kind of metaphysical good, good designer, you know, and you're, you're probably going to only get two out of three in most cases. Yeah. So like, and that's okay. And it almost doesn't matter which two, as long as, you know, relative to the role. Right. Uh, and like when I got hired at Hotop, you know, it was an all AutoCAD house at the time. And I had just taught myself to draft on a computer because at the time that was like, I didn't learn it in college. And then I got into the workforce and I was like, oh my God, I'm drafting with a pencil and nobody wants to hire me. So I had just taught myself Vectorworks and it took me like six months and I just finished my first project. And I go in for this interview at Hotop, which was a big deal for me at the time. I was living in New York. I had no money. You know, I was like freelancing, but it was a real struggle. And this was like a legit opportunity. And I go in there and they look at my portfolio and I talk to this guy and everything. And then they say, oh, well, you know, AutoCAD. And I was like, no. And, you know, I, I know Vectorworks and they're like, we well, don't use Vectorworks. I'm sorry. And, you know, then they introduced me to Michael Hotop and I talked to him for five minutes and he basically told them, like, hire that guy anyway. And they sat me in a corner for the first three weeks with an AutoCAD book. And well, they said, we're going to give you three weeks to teach yourself AutoCAD sitting in this corner. And, then, <laughs> and two weeks in, they got behind on a project and said, okay, guess what? You don't get the last week and here's what we need you to do. And then I just learned it on the job. And, you know, now it's 15 years later and I own the company. So like hiring, you know, it tells you that it was like, he nailed I learned it. the skill. 
Right, right. And I don't use, and it's been a long time since I've had to use either one of those programs. So. Totally, <laughs> right. Like anytime you're touching one of those programs, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> like, That's right. Right. If I'm opening AutoCAD, we've, something's failed, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? Totally. <That's> true. <laughs> you know, but it, but it is like the, that idea of, uh, you know, the, like, what's the balance that you want in, 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 in people and, uh, and knowing what you're after on the, I mean, you can hire for behavior all day, but what does that really mean? And, you know, that's a lot of what I've learned now in the last year is, is, you know, for behavior is another way of talking about alignment, I guess, you know, and like, I think that that, that is really been, uh, you know, that lesson of when I didn't really hire for it or I thought I was, but it turned out it wasn't. And maybe, maybe also like things change, companies change, companies grow and they evolve. So yeah, I, I don't know, but uh, so I, I'm still here, even though I didn't know AutoCAD. <laughs> so yeah, and and you know we can we can like make make pretend like the hypothetical Gary that like didn't have those other the other you know approaches and features that you bring to the work, but was like killer at AutoCAD. Like you probably wouldn't be running this company now, right? Because like it's not your AutoCAD skills that that you know got you to the CEO job. No, no, not at all. Right. And that's it. You know, so it's kind of like knowing what you're hiring for and what really matters. But especially now that we're smaller again, though, like I'm all about the multi-tool, you know, player. And, you know, I yeah. don't think anyone, I don't think anything one, like one thing like that for the right person is disqualifying. Right. You know, and, uh, and in some cases in the criteria, you know, before we laid everybody off and downsized for, for COVID, you know, part of the internal conversation that I was having with some of the leaders who I let go was very skills based, you know, and they were kind of when we were when I first brought it before I made the, the decisions I made, I brought it to the larger management team to say, this is what I think we should do. And it wasn't what I ultimately did. I started with, you know, I think we should scale back, we should ask everybody to go on half pay, we should cut as few people as possible. And we should take the work that we do have and spread it around the company. And I met real resistance to that saying, oh, well, the people that aren't busy now don't have the skills to do what we need and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, but I don't think that's the right criteria right now. Who's busy today is not why we should cut people. Totally. Right? And I was talking about what we're talking about now, like the people who had demonstrated the behavior and the energy and the alignment that I was talking about that maybe weren't busy at that moment in time, you know, I felt like that was the wrong the wrong criteria and some of the people the leaders who i was not agreeing with were saying oh well, they don't have the technical skills we need so those, those people should go because we have this project right now and we got to get it done you know and we're not going to get it done if you fire these people and keep the people you want and lo and behold like the people that i kept are, are doing that work right totally yeah. totally of course and, they you are know, six weeks six weeks later all those things we were afraid that would fail are done you know by by less people in a yeah. shorter amount of time it's awesome. So, it's awesome. Right. Yeah, it's the power of alignment. Um, I guess so. Gary, this has been awesome. Yeah, it's great talking to you. I, I feel like we've said this before. We can have this conversation forever. So totally, <laughs> yeah. Um, but where where can people uh, where can people find out more about you guys? Uh, I mean, the easiest thing is our website is just hotop.com. And you can go check out our work and a lot of this philosophy I'm talking about. There's a page there on obstacle-based design and what that process is. So, cool. uh, you know, and you can see the cross-section of what we do there. Awesome. Um, well, this has been awesome. Uh, thank you for doing this. Um, thanks, for, thanks for everything you shared. All right. It was great. Thanks. Awesome. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. 
To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.